Please remain standing while we pray. Father, each one of us stands before you eager for another, another move of your spirit. A soul that cries out, do it again. We remember times, moments in life where you felt so close. Times when we felt alive, times when we felt almost doubtless. Father, we ask for, for fresh wind and fresh fire as we start a semester and, and gear up for the work that's ahead in our classes and in our life and, and in our hearts. God, do it again. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Anybody tell me what that is? A little louder. A what? A butterfly. Okay, butterfly. I heard a, a blossom. Uh, ink blot. Somebody in psychology, what is this called when we put this in front of people? Rorschach test, yes. And the whole idea, of course, behind a Rorschach test developed by Herman Rorschach in the 1960s is that you put images in front of people that are simply ink blots, but they see things within them, and it tells you something about their emotional and psychological state because it's a form of projection, and they're actually looking into it, um, what they want to see out of it. In some ways, it's almost functioning as a mirror for a part of who they are. There's an old joke that gets told along these lines about this test where a psychiatric patient is sitting with the doctor and the doctor shows him one of these slides and says, what do you see? And the patient says, I sex. He says, well, what do you see in the next one? He says, I see sex. And then he gives him a third one. He says, what do you see now? He says, I see sex. And the psychiatrist says to him, sir, I, I think you're obsessed with sex. And the patient says, well, you're the one showing me all the dirty pictures. What do we see in the things that we come to in this world, and do we project into them what's already in us rather than what's actually in that object? Do we do it in our relationships with other people? Do we see what we want to see, or do we, can we ever actually see anything objectively? Here's an image that appeared this weekend on social media, and the world went off. Covington Catholic student, Nick Sandman on the left, Nathan Phillips, Vietnam veteran and First Nations activist on the right, and the world started chiming in on everything that was happening between this student with the MAGA hat on and, and this, this elder that seemed to be disrespected in this moment. Um, but there's so much more to the story as more and more begins to take, take to the airwaves. As videos from different angles and vantage points come forward and one is left wondering, what is it that I actually see? Writing on this passage, uh, Julie Zimmerman in The Atlantic wrote an article that concluded like this. So the story actually is a Rorschach test. Tell me how you first reacted, and I can probably tell you where you live, who you voted for in 2016, and your general take on other issues. But it shouldn't be. So is that the way that we're experiencing the world today? 
We surround ourselves in a hall of mirrors where we only see looking back at us the things that we want to see. Is there a humility of spirit that allows ourselves to be changed? I'm so afraid that the same problem happens to every one of us every time we open up the Bible. Each one of us, whether we want to admit it or not, comes to Scripture with a certain level of eisegesis. We're reading into it. We're looking for the things that we want to affirm where we currently are, and we will find the things often that challenge us the least. A true helpful approach to Scripture is much more exegesis where we let it speak on its own terms and let it challenge us in the ways that it wants to challenge us and not just simply in the ways that we want to see. When people encounter Jesus... In biblical times and also today, the same thing happens. And I want to show you a passage that unpacks this today as we continue our journey through the book of John this semester. And what happens here is there's 41 verses in this text to ex- describe a healing of a blind man. There's not actually that many healing stories in the Gospel of John. And then when they're included, they tell more than just about the healing of the compassion of God. They also tell just about the heart of God and how Jesus is a reflection of the Father. And there's so much going on theologically in these stories. And so this healing story actually takes 41 verses to tell. And I want to walk you through it as quickly as we can today. And hopefully we can see not what we want to see, but be challenged when we come to Scripture with with what it is that God wants us to see. In John 9, as he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. The night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes open, they asked. He replied, the man they call Jesus. The man they call Yeshua. The man they call literally Yahweh to the rescue. Made mud. And he put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed. And then I could see. Where is this man, they asked. I don't know, he said. I'm going to pause right there with you for a moment, because when this story starts off, there's a certain prevailing worldview at work within everybody who's experiencing this story except for Jesus. The disciples themselves, those who are close to Jesus, see the world through the same lenses that the Pharisees and everybody else does, and that is through very mathematical 
karma-like, formulaic ways of seeing the world. That for every action, there was an equal and opposite reaction. And bad things don't happen to good people. Bad things only happen to bad people or bad people's parents. So if something bad happened to this man, somehow he probably deserved it. And the reason why they did this is because it allowed them to kick lepers out of town to treat poor people or people who were blind poorly and let them beg for a living and not have compassion on them because your heart is reserved from having to have compassion on them because obviously they deserve this in some way that I don't know about but surely God does and so it allows you to put this person in a separate category. So Jesus, we're obviously dealing with a sinner here. Just tell us whose fault it is. And they only got two possible solutions. It's either his or his parents. And to me, one of the saddest things is, is that so many of us live a faith that is very much like the disciples' response. We still live a faith so often that really believes not in a system of grace, but in a system of karma. Some terrible diagnosis that happens to a family, and we're like, I just don't get it. They're wonderful people. A sin doesn't get eliminated in my life that I've been fighting for a long time. And I'm like, I don't get it. I've been, I've been reading my Bible every morning. I, I, I pray all the time. And we're kind of expecting God to respond to our best efforts. And in many ways, this is not grace at all. It's a very formulaic system of religiosity that denies the work of the cross, that ignores grace. It's really a graceless Christianity. But all of us in some way, myself included, have a form of religion that works like this in our lives. God, I just don't get it. And we really believe there's some sort of scales of karma that are supposed to work and balance themselves out. Cause and effect religion. It's formulaic. And I think we all want to believe this because it's easier. And it allows us to feel like in some manner we're in control of things. We can shame ourselves when we do something wrong, and we can prop ourselves up when we do something right, and that somewhere in the middle we're finding our way through in this world with God. But friends, this is a graceless Christianity. It's not what Jesus came to bring, and what his answer is to this type of approach every time is, the new wine that I'm bringing is not going to fit in this wineskin. It's going to blow it up. Jesus came to blow up our religiosity and our karma-like Christianity. Jesus came to introduce us to grace. And because sin is so insidious and, so is, and sin is so indiscriminatory and sin is so unfair, grace had to be even more so. Grace had to wash over a multitude of sins. Grace had to break the formulaic approach. And the rest of the story follows. And then Jesus does this weird thing where he bends down, grabs mud, and then spits on it, which actually, according to Jewish laws, you're not allowed to make paste on the Sabbath. So already here we've got a problem. Jesus is breaking the law on the Sabbath, even in the way that he's going to heal this guy, never mind the fact that he actually does. But has this verse ever bothered you? Being like, why? If I, if I was going to meet Jesus, I'm not sure I want him to spit on me. There's a lot of things I'd like to encounter in Jesus. I'm not sure spitting's one of them. Why is this in the Bible? You ever wonder this? Why did Jesus do this? I think the answer comes in the verse before this. We must do the works of him who sent me. That's what Jesus says to the disciples. 
The Gospel of John starts off where? The very beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It echoes the book of Genesis in the beginning. It takes us all the way back. we got to be about what my father's about. What did the father do in chapter 2 in the book of Genesis? He grows into the mud. He takes a clump of it up, and he breathes life into it. And between the combination of the earth and his own breath comes life. And now Jesus, acting like his father, is teaching that we need to look like him. People are going to be healed in the same way. And so he puts his hands in the mud. He combines it with part of himself. And in the same way his father brought forth life, Jesus brings forth this beautiful reflection of life as God wants it to be. Even in the mud and the spit of Jesus comes new birth and renewal. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. And they still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he can now see? Uh, we know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can now see or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he's of age, ask him. And so a second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth. They said, we know this man is a sinner. And he replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody's ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. And the events start to escalate really quickly in this story, don't they? Jesus kneels down and mixes paste and then puts it on the man's eyes. And it's because of this, the fairy said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. And it's remarkable how many people watching Jesus don't see what they're supposed to see when they look at him. And the irony, of course, is that the blind man has greater insight than those who actually have eyesight, for he can see more clearly. And it's incredibly thick in the passage. And all they can see is that he's breaking a rule. One of the key texts I think we often forget when processing stuff like this is Jesus' reminder in Mark 9, verse 40, that if those who are not against us are for us. I think so often you and I encounter things that don't fit in our theological box. 
We hear something about something happening in a group of Christians in another denomination, and we want to quickly dismiss it. We want to find it. It doesn't fit in our box. I don't know what to do with it. Therefore, there must be something wrong with it. Not with me. We Rorschach test the whole thing. We see in it what we want to see in it. We don't have a posture of humility. We don't have a heart that desires first and foremost to wake up tomorrow morning and be absolutely rocked by the Savior of the world. We want to experience a world that we think we already know. And so every single follower of Jesus has to ask themselves the question, am I more interested in a humble heart that will be blown away every single day of my life by the Messiah of the world, or do I want a world that I think I already know and understand? See, I would argue the second of that is actually humanism. It's a belief in ourselves. It's a propping of ourselves and our understanding above God. And it's not actually faith. It's a greater faith than what I can wrap my mind around, not in what God can surprise me by. That is a dangerous way to live life, claiming to be a Christian. Nobody had ever even heard of a man born blind. There's not a story in the Old Testament of even a prophet being able to do this. It was believed that only God himself could do it. So Jesus purposely heals this guy in a synagogue with the Pharisees watching, and now they got to make a choice. Am I going to let my little box get blown apart, or am I going to decide that this is just simply outside of it and I don't have to deal with it? And then so the circus of events starts to happen, right? They bring him and they want to blame him. It happened to you. You answer for it. He's like, I don't know. It just happened. And he's got this sort of beautiful, teachable spirit and heart in the middle of this, but the Pharisees don't. That's what N.T. Wright says about them. He says, not only are they wrong in this passage, but they've constructed a system which, within which they can never see that they are wrong. It's one thing to be genuinely mistaken and be open to new evidence, new arguments, new insights, but it's another to create a closed world like a sealed room into which no light, no fresh air can come from the outside. And isn't it interesting that often those in the most privileged positions of power, those who have the most to lose when they admit their own ignorance, are the last to be able to come to terms with it. So they turn on him instead. This can't be something wrong with the way we think. It's got to be your problem. What do you have to say about him? It's a great distraction technique, by the way, if you can ever do this in an oral exam. I don't know the answer, but I bet you don't either, doctor. <laughs> you ever remember trying this in elementary school? You sort of find your way around by seeing if somebody else can answer it and not having to admit that you don't know. And then when that doesn't work, they turn on his parents. And his parents are afraid of retribution and reprisal as well, right? So you've got Pharisees who are totally afraid. They're afraid that their ignorance will be revealed or the fact that they can't control the situation will be revealed. His parents are afraid of reprisal. Nobody yet has been like, this is amazing. This guy can see my son who I love. He has, uh, he has vision. His world has changed. Parents are more worried about themselves and saving their own skin. They're going to throw their own kid under the bus in this moment because of fear. The Pharisees have yet to address the fact that this is incredible. What if God has come down and is working among us? No, no, no. Somebody broke the Sabbath and somebody's got to pay. You know, it's an interesting side note. Jesus, Paul, nor any other New Testament writer ever once in the New Testament talks about keeping the Sabbath. Jesus breaks it seven ways from Sunday. You see what I did there? 
I don't know what to do with that. I don't know what to do with that and what that means. But see, these are the questions that Jesus introduces into life because he doesn't want you to believe in the things that you think you already know. He wants you to believe in him and his goodness. This is the essence of faith. This is not just about who gets the Old Testament better. This is the very heart of it all. The second time they summon the blind men, they're not giving up on this. Give glory to God by telling the truth. They said, we know this man is a sinner. Whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. All I know is I was blind and now I see. N.T. Wright issues us a second warning. When surrounded by fear and anger, the only way through is to glimpse whatever we can of Jesus and to follow him out of darkness and into the light. My guess is that every one of us in this room have something happening in our life right now that we cannot make sense of. We can't explain theologically. It doesn't fit inside of our comprehension. We don't know what to do with it. We come across something in class and it challenges the truth that we thought we always knew. And we don't know what to do with it. What I want to implore you is that these are the moments where God wants to teach us to believe in him and in his goodness and not in our ability to comprehend. Friends, otherwise they wouldn't call it faith. And N.T. Wright is right. Fix your eyes on Jesus and let him take us through this. I don't know what kind of landmine I'm walking through. And I don't know how to answer all the theodicy questions in the world about how does God allow this and this and this. I don't know. But I know that he is good and I know he's walking me through this. And friends, that's where faith gets formed. And they ask him, because st- they can't get out of the formula, how? How? And then he just absolutely gets sick of the questioning. He can't take it anymore. In fact, he even, I love this, he appropriates their logic and he casts his lot still with them. He says, we know that God does not listen to sinners, right? Okay, I'm going to play along with your game here, basically, he's saying, right? I will appropriate your, your filter, your rubric, And nobody's ever heard of anybody doing something like this. So you're left with a choice to make. And all they can say in verse 34 is, oh yeah, well, you're dumb. (laughs) Right? Like, isn't this the most immature response you could possibly have? I don't know what to do with this, so... It's basically all they've come up with. The most learned men in the country, and that's the best response they can come up with with Jesus blowing the world apart. Why? Why are they not more interested in the compassion of God? Why are they not more interested in God's children being put back together again? Why are they not more interested in the inbreaking of the kingdom of God? Why sometimes are we caught up in the details of how rather than just embrace the beauty of faith, the mystery, the wonder of God? If you could already fully explain him, then you're probably wasting your time in Christianity. You need a God that's bigger than you. You need a God that's bigger than your situation and all that you can comprehend. And my friends, that is faith. And so they yell at him. And then it ends with this. They toss him out. And Jesus doesn't stick around to enjoy the celebrities who were there, self-appointed. Jesus heard they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, for judgment I have come into the world, 
So the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what, are we blind too? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you see, your guilt remains. And 41 verses later, the tables have turned. And the exact opposite has happened from where we started in the story. My friends, to the eyes of faith, may your insight always be better than your eyesight. May your faith always be bigger than anything that you can comprehend or understand or wrap our little minds around. May God be so big that he dwarfs your understanding. And may mystery and awe and the goodness of his heart fill you with wonder and desire and longing for the world that only he can bring. Go in peace to love and to serve that God. Have a beautiful day and a great semester. Amen.